We are, uh, we are back in the Gospel of Mark. We are going to begin Mark chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12. Um, really today, the scripture that we're looking at deals with two types of people, people that are faith-filled and people that are faithless. And I think we can probably say that this room is filled with the same kinds of people, people that are filled with faith, people that trust in the Lord to move in their lives, that go to Him knowing that they have nothing to offer. And then there are probably people in here that, if we're being honest, are faithless. And it's because we haven't experienced Jesus in the way that he wants us to experience him. We haven't seen him for who he really is. And so my prayer for us today is that if you are faith-filled, that you would leave this place encouraged, that you would take that faith out into the world beyond the pipe and drape of this cafeteria, and that you would put that into application and use for people that do not have faith yet. If you are faithless, I pray that you would come to faith this morning by seeing Jesus for who he really is, as he kind of explains that himself. So Mark chapter 2, we're going to start in verses 1 through 5, and the first thing that we see this morning is that we are to bring the broken to Jesus. We are to bring the broken to Jesus, and this is particularly dealing with the faith-filled people, verses 1 through 5, chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof around him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So where are we in the story? Remember last, not last week, because Pastor John preached last week. The week before that, Jesus heals a paralytic, not a paralytic, a leper. He is in the outer reaches of this area of Galilee. His ministry has become so popular, so hot, that he couldn't stay in town anymore. And so he goes out to the rural areas of Galilee, and he heals a leper he tells that leper, hey, shh, keep this a secret, be quiet. I can't let my messianic identity really be broadcasted just yet because we have so many other people to tell the gospel, to share this message with. And you guys are getting really excited about these miracles, and it's kind of getting distracting from the message that I came to preach. And so now where is Jesus? Well, Jesus is back in Capernaum. Jesus is probably back at Peter's house. And I'm thinking maybe like one person, they saw Jesus kind of sneaking through the back alleyways, like Peter opens his back door. I saw, I saw Jesus. He's back at Peter's house. Don't tell. And the next thing you know, just it's the biggest block party that that street has ever experienced. We see two things here. We see two things from Jesus to these faith-filled people. We see two reasons why we are to bring broken people and broken things and our broken selves to Jesus. And that is the first subpoint: is that broken people need Jesus's teaching. How will people know that they need Jesus if it has not been presented to them? They need the information of why they need Jesus. We can't just be walking around a bunch of sinful people all the time, disdainful, looking down our nose at them and just shaking our heads saying, you need Jesus. 
okay? And maybe you get around some other people and you say, man, you need Jesus. Okay, well, why do they need Jesus? They need to know his teaching. They need to know the gospel. They need to know the message to see how they are broken. So how is it that we see that we are broken? Well, within the gospel, we see that we need to repent. What do we need to repent of? We need to repent of our sin. So there has to be a calling out, a confrontation of us between us and our sin. You see, God is perfect because God is perfect. For us to have a right relationship with him, we have to also be perfect. Is there anyone in here that's perfect? All right, that's really good. If anybody's going to raise their hands, I would ask them to maybe go join another church because we got a really good imperfect thing going on right here. Our sin makes it to where we can't come into relationship with God because we have missed the mark. That's what it causes us to do. That's why we need somebody to make us clean, to bring righteousness into our life, and we see that in Jesus. We need to know that we are sinful people. We need to have our sin pointed out in our lives. We need to be confronted. Anyone in here like confrontation? I'm really glad you didn't raise your hands for that too. Confrontation is not fun. Being confronted by your sin is not fun. Maybe some of you guys signed up for marriage and you thought, man, this is going to make me happy. And then you're confronted with your sin and with your selfishness from your spouse every day. And you realize really quick that marriage isn't to make you happy. Marriage is to make you holy. Probably the same thing happened when a lot of you became parents. You start to realize how sinful we actually are, how self-centered, inwardly focused we actually are. How do we know we're sinful? If it is not pointed out to us in our lives, we need the information. We need the teaching of Jesus. But we also need to realize that it doesn't just end there at our sin. We're not just tapped out hopeless. We also need to know through the teaching of Jesus that there is forgiveness. So if there's forgiveness, then that means that somebody has to make a way for us to be forgiven. And if there has to be somebody that makes a way for us to be forgiven, then that means somebody would have had to have lived a perfect life, and then they would have had to have been sacrificed for us, because anytime there is sin, there has to be a blood atonement that is made, a blood sacrifice that is made. Sin requires blood to be washed clean. That person, that person is the Savior. That is the message. That is the gospel in which Jesus is bringing to this packed house. But what did these people want? Jesus, why do you keep telling us about our sin and our need to repent? Jesus, why do you keep saying that we need a Messiah, that we need to be saved, that the the kingdom is coming, and that these things will be here and also available in the future? Jesus, we just want your miracles. We don't want your preaching. We don't want your teaching. Just give us signs, Jesus. Just give us wonders. We want our minds to be blown. But Jesus gives them not what they think they need. He doesn't just give them what their hearts desire. Once again, we see this over and over throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus gives them exactly what they truly need. Not a temporary fix, but eternal salvation. An eternal fix. Not the quick fix, but the eternal solution. Why do we bring the broken to Jesus? Because they need to to hear his teaching, but also his teaching leads to forgiveness, and that is what we truly need. This place is so packed. 
that there is absolutely no way to get this paralytic man to the feet of Jesus. And so what do these four men that are filled with faith, we can assume that this paralytic may also be filled with faith, they have one goal. Our goal is to get our paralyzed friend before Jesus. What is their motivation to get their paralyzed friend before Jesus? That he may be healed. Why do they think that he may be healed if they get him before Jesus? Because they have one thing, and that is faith. They faithfully believe that Jesus can heal their friend. So that means that as his faithful friends, they need to faithfully do whatever it takes to get this paralytic who cannot get before Jesus, before Jesus. They faithfully believe that Jesus can heal him. Then they creatively find a solution. Now, this is crazy right here. The door is jammed. Not just because it's a door jam, but because there's so many people in that door. The house is filled. They're probably spilling out. They're probably looking into the window or the hole with curtains over it. I don't exactly know how houses work fully back then, but I do know about the roof. So let me tell you about the roof. They find a way onto the roof. They probably just walked up some stairs. These were reinforced roofs. People hung out on them back in that time. But what's crazy to me is they're, okay, we can't get them before Jesus. And so somebody out of the four of those guys had to say, okay, Jesus is sitting in this spot right here. There's a staircase. We can get up on the roof, and if we dig a hole in Peter's roof, then maybe we can lower Jesus down, or lower the paralytic down before Jesus. Jesus didn't need to be lowered down, all right? The paralytic needed to be lowered before Jesus. So that means that they had to identify, let's start digging here. Now, these roofs, pretty uh, fortified. They were about a foot thick, all right? Lots of insulation. So somebody has to say, we're digging here. I'm thinking two other guys probably had to bring some tools uh, to strap onto this guy's bed so that they could lay him down. Otherwise, they're, they're digging that hole. Jesus is sitting there teaching. Some dust starts to fall on his really nice head of hair, and then maybe some straw, and then maybe some mud, and then Eventually, this hole just gets big enough that you can fit an entire human and his bed. Now, this wasn't like a queen-size mattress or anything. This is just a mat. Other translations would say that this guy slept on, and then they're just going to lower him. So somebody either had to bring tools, or it's a good thing that guy's paralyzed because they're just going to drop him, okay? (laughs) They had to get creative. They also had to be persistent. Think about digging through a foot of insulation. Who knows if there was crossbeams? to get this guy down to Jesus. Dig, dig, dig. It took faithfulness. It took creativity. It took persistence. And then when they finally lower this guy down and he gets before Jesus, they are met with a shocking conclusion. Jesus doesn't look up and say, hey guys, it looks like I need head and shoulders now because all this insulation in my hair. No, Jesus meets them with this sentence. Son, your sins are forgiven. Wow. Not angry, not frustrated, not, hey guys, I'm trying to teach here. But Jesus knows that in this moment, everything that he is teaching is about to be illustrated perfectly. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, when Jesus says, Son, that shows his deep compassion. That shows that he loves this man, that he cares for this man. You don't just call anyone's son, he shows his deep compassion. But then he says something else. He says, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus says that, Jesus shows his ability not just to heal him physically, but to heal him spiritually. Spiritually. 
This is what he needs most. He needs forgiveness of sin. That means that sin may be tied to this man's paralysis. Now, we see in John that not all illness or horrible things that can happen to us are always tied to sin, but it seems like in this moment, this may be tied to sin. This man needs to be forgiven. This man needs to be made whole spiritually, but also physically. This is what this man desires, his ability to walk. And Jesus is about to not just take care of one of those things. It sounds like that in a sentence, but then we see the man get up and go. We have two big questions here as we read this scripture. The first one, um, very serious question. Uh, How much did it cost Peter to fix the roof? Anybody? Nothing. It's on the house. Thank you. I'll, I'll be here all week. Just not here at my house. It's a little down the road. Second real question, by whose faith? was this man healed. We see that physically, perhaps, and I say perhaps in italics this morning, um, from what I have studied, perhaps this man was healed because of his faith. But perhaps this man was healed by the faith of his friends. This man who was broken, who could not walk. And if it is his faith, and that shows our need for faith in Jesus to do things in our lives that we can't do ourselves. If it is the faith of his friends, that shows us our need to be faithful friends, filled with faith to our friends that do not know Jesus, that are broken, that need us to act on their behalf. But spiritually, for him to be forgiven, this is a faith of his own. This man, think about this. This man's a paralytic. This guy has no chance, no shot at getting in front of Jesus if it was not for his friends. Now he is in front of Jesus. He sees that he is absolutely helpless because he can't get up. He can't run away somewhere because he feels awkward, because he feels like he intruded on this moment. This man is absolutely helpless and has felt helpless his entire life. It's the same posture that we need to come before Jesus with is absolute helplessness. There is nothing that we can do to save us of our sin. There's no amount of good deeds that we can do that will save us from our sin. We are fully, wholly dependent on Jesus. And in this moment, Jesus takes pity on him, and he calls him son. So by his faith, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to forgiveness, by his faith, by his friend's action, but only through an act of God. Nothing that we can do can save us. It is fully reliant on the work of Jesus on the cross. And in this moment, Jesus saying that he is the Messiah, knowing what was to come. This guy is relying fully on Jesus. What we need to realize is that we have been called to do this exact same thing. That we are called to be faithful with our friends, with our family around us. That we are called to be creative with our family, with our friends, with our coworkers around us. That we are called to be persistent with our family, with our friends, with our coworkers, with all the people that God has put into our life around us. When I was in high school, I played offensive line and defensive end. Uh, I had... Um, not the greatest football career, but I knew I had influence over these football players that were a little bit younger than me. I was a junior. They were sophomores. They were already better at football than me. I just had a car, and they couldn't drive yet. 
every single Wednesday night, we got out of practice early because we lived in Texas, and they wanted you to get to church because it's a God-fearing state, also known as the promised land. I know it's not like that here, but maybe one day, if the gospel spreads, we will get there. Uh, But I knew I had to be faithful. I knew that there was only one way that my friends and my fellow teammates were ever going to give their lives to Jesus, and that was if they knew that they were sinful. And that was if they knew that they would be forgiven of their sin if they put their trust and their faith in Jesus. They had to hear the gospel. They had to experience Jesus for who he was. I had to be faithful and invite them to church. That meant that I had to be creative. I knew that they weren't just going to church because they wanted to hear some silly youth pastor preach a message. They didn't want to just hang out with me. I knew that I had to be creative because the only thing that was going to get them to church was if I bought them Chipotle sometimes two burritos at a time, every single Wednesday before church. I know what you're thinking right now. Alex, how are you so balling? That's so much money. You're so loaded. How'd you pay for all those double, triple meat inside of all those burritos? How'd you pay for the defensive line to eat two burritos? I didn't even think that was possible. I didn't either. It turns out it is. Uh, And the answer to that is my grandma paid for it all. (laughs) Every single Wednesday, she was just giving me 20s to pay for dinner for these really large offense and defensive linemen. Why? One reason. She knew that they needed to get before Jesus. She knew they were broken young men. They had hung out at our house enough for her to know that was true. She knew they needed to hear the gospel. It took persistence. It took me inviting them over and over and over. It took a lot of food or a lot of money just to feed them. It took a lot of food in my Nissan Versa, my 2007 Nissan Versa with Three people in the front. I'm not small. That's a small vehicle. Me in the front, a person in the middle, on the middle console, a big boy in the front riding shotgun, four across the back, and I really just mean three and then one laying on their laps, okay? And then two in the hatchback. Okay, we're driving down the highway going 35 miles per hour, and everybody's really mad and honking and telling us we're number one until they drive next to us and they see a Nissan Versa clown car full of seven to eight very large young men. And then they just keep driving and laugh. We had to get creative. We had to be persistent. But so many of those guys came to know Jesus. Chances are you have to be faithful to the people that are in your life that don't know Jesus yet. Chances are you need to be creative in how you share the gospel with them or get them to a place where they are exposed to the gospel. Chances are you need to be persistent in following up with them, making sure that they understood it, living a life that actually is an example of what it means to follow Jesus. And it's not just something you talk about, but it's something that you actually show. The second thing that we see in today's scripture is that we need to see Jesus for who he really is. There's something that happens at salvation, and that is that we see Jesus for who he truly is. We need other people to see Jesus for who he truly is. And this is the point in today's scripture where Jesus goes from dealing with the faith-filled people to the faithless people. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. And he said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now everything that Jesus had been preaching has been put on display. His authority over this man's inability to walk has been put to use. And these guys are starting to see things and they're starting to question things. But I think when we read this, a lot of times we look at the scribes and we look at the Pharisees and we think, no, there's no way I would ever be that guy. I would be like these faith-filled guys over here. But I think for a lot of us religious people, this is exactly who we would probably be if we are being honest. The scribes aren't entirely wrong here. And I say entirely wrong. In their ignorance, they do have some ground to stand on. Now, they may be the only ones in the room that are actually paying attention to Jesus and know the law and know what it says enough to call Jesus out on what he is saying here. But his words, Jesus' words, in their eyes would have been disrespectful and they would have been dishonoring to God. Why? Because they are completely and utterly blasphemous. Unless, unless one thing that all of this hinges on. Unless Jesus is actually God. We look at verses 5 through 9 and we see that. We see that Jesus is God. We see that this isn't the first of his run-ins with the scribes and the Pharisees. This is the beginning of a a uh, five-controversy discourse that Jesus has with these religious Jewish leaders that we'll go over in the next few weeks. But we see verses 5 through 9, Jesus is God. The scribes were right. Only God can forgive sin, and that is exactly what Jesus is communicating to them. He's saying, I am God. We're seeing that Jesus was and is God, and then he follows that up with two questions. Why do you question these things in your heart? Why would you question these things in your heart? Probably because Jesus was coming at them from a place that they absolutely did not expect. And I'd be willing to bet that there are times and moments in our lives where Jesus interjects himself into our lives and we are caught off guard thinking, man, I don't know what just happened because that was not the way I expected to see Jesus. I think there's a lot of times we say we worship Jesus, but we actually worship our expectations of who we think Jesus is and how we think he should operate in our lives. And that's certainly not the case. Jesus will always get our attention. He will always set his own expectation and he will always make clear what he wants to go down in that moment. He says, it is easier. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up, take your bed and walk? Now, Jesus knew it was one thing just to say it. Jesus knew it was another thing entirely to prove. Now, this is who I'm saying I am. Now, let me show you who I am. I am God. I am the Messiah that you have been looking for. Now, let me prove it. This man is walking. But that's not all that Jesus is saying who he is as far as these scriptures go. When we look at verses 10 and 11, Jesus doesn't just say that he is God through what he is saying, but he also gives himself a title, and this is really big. He calls himself the Son of Man. So Jesus is the Son of Man, and this is a self-designated title that Jesus gives himself, and he uses it 81 times throughout all four of the Gospels. And so What does it mean? And why wouldn't he just lead with, I am Jesus, the Christ, or I am Jesus, the Messiah? 
Well, Jesus is using it to describe himself, and he uses it just in this gospel alone two times when he is talking about serving other people. He uses it three times when he is talking about coming in glory. He uses it seven times when he talks about suffering for the sake of humanity. But these guys, they would have known this title, Son of Man, from somewhere else. They would have remembered it when they would be studying throughout, throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament uses this title twice, and it is a beautiful thing. Every time the Old Testament uses it, it paints a picture of exactly who Jesus would be, but in two different ways. And the first time that we see this in the Old Testament is Psalm 144.3, where it describes this Son of Man as just being a human being. And that's one side of Jesus that we see over and over in the Gospels. He is fully God, fully man. He is reacting and he is relating to everything that you and I experience, experiencing every temptation that we experience yet without sin. So that means that as the Son of Man, we have a God that can relate to us. But we also see in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, that this is the one who will establish God's kingdom. So right there, all the way back to the Old Testament, which these guys would have been familiar with, Jesus calling himself the Son of Man, if they could just recall, they would see exactly who he is, fully God, fully man. He is the coming Lord of glory. Jesus is laying all of his cards out here in this statement. He is telling them exactly who he is and exactly what he has come to do. Now, the question, why not just say, I am Jesus the Christ, or why not just say, I am Jesus the Messiah? It's because these titles had too many preconceived notions attached to them. The Jewish people were looking for their conquering Christ. They were looking for a mighty political Messiah to free them from Roman rule and oppression. They were looking for someone who would authoritatively introduce the kingdom from the top down. And what they were not ready for was exactly what they got, which was Jesus, who was humbly introducing the kingdom by serving and loving and having compassion and going to the outer reaches, to the lepers where nobody ever would go by having patience on a man being lowered down before him as he is teaching to love, to serve, and to heal him. Jesus came to bring the kingdom from the bottom up. Now, a way that we can relate to this is probably a show that you have seen many, many times. It was probably a lot more popular five to ten years ago than it is today. It's called Undercover Boss. That is exactly what is taking place here. Now, the premise of Undercover Boss is I am a high-level CEO, and I'm going to ABC, and I want to find out exactly what's happening in my company. But man, I think this stuff is really curated because I don't think they could actually show everything that is actually happening in these companies. If you've ever worked anywhere, you know that 90% of what you experience throughout the workday can never hit TV airtime. So the idea is that a CEO goes to ABC, hey, I want to figure out what's working in my company, who my real true employees are that are looking out for the good of the organization, but I want to find the bad apples too. I want to figure out who isn't here for the company, but here for themselves. And so ABC says, all right, yeah, man, we got you. I hear you. Now let's go try on some disguises. And so then they dress the CEO up, and as a disguised person, he starts off as an intern in the company. And then they give him another disguise sometimes, and he goes to another level of employment, and he starts to really ask questions. Hey, what do you think about the CEO? And sometimes they spill the beans, and it's just terrible. Other times they're like, man, I really like that guy. And it's really funny to me at the end of every episode when they reveal, hey, this guy's been the CEO the whole time. Those people either become like 
really promoted or get cars or houses bought for them. It's all the people that are like, yeah, I love the CEO. So really all that to say, if you ever feel like there's somebody who looks kind of like your CEO and they might have a wig on, just say really good things about them and see if you get a new car or a house, okay? Or a promotion. Now there's a picture here. This is Drew Brees, uh, former quarterback of the uh, New Orleans Saints. And uh, that's what he really looks like on the left here. I just used this illustration because he kind of looks like Jesus on the right. But this is exactly what is taking place. This is exactly how Jesus came to bring the kingdom. He didn't come from the top down as the CEO of heaven saying, hey, here's my kingdom. Here's how it's going to be. Rome, get out of here. Hey, all my people, let's party. Let's celebrate. I have set you free. Jesus came from the bottom to bring the kingdom all the way to the top. So we have to ask ourselves some questions based on this. And that is, would our expectation of Jesus keep us from actually seeing him? That's exactly what's taking place for the scribes, for the Pharisees here. Would your religious traditions blind you from actually experiencing Jesus as he wants you to experience him? I know we come from a lot of backgrounds. This is a stained glass of a church when it comes to denominations, coming together to follow Jesus on mission in the gospel. That means we have a lot of baggage. That means we have a lot of teaching that may have been just slightly off, that may be wrecking our relationships with Jesus and actually experiencing him for who he is. We may still be trying to earn our salvation. We may still think that if I make one wrong move, I might lose my salvation. That's not the case. What traditions are keeping you from seeing him? Or, for you believers, would his words, would his actions reveal his true identity? Would you be able to, like these four faith-filled men, say, no, that's him. That's him. There's something different about this guy. I think this is, this is the Messiah. I hear this message. I believe this message. But then we have to ask ourselves, would we actually understand the message and know it if we heard it? Would we actually have spent enough time in his word, in his presence, knowing who he actually is, that if we came into contact with him, we would actually experience him for who he truly is? He's an undercover boss, but he is here to heal physically and spiritually. Third final point this morning, we are to glorify him for what he's done. We see this in verses 11 through 12. I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. Beautiful words to this man who could not go anywhere. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Once again, Jesus heals sickness physically. What do we glorify Jesus for? He heals sickness physically physically. And yes, this is just a temporary solution, but Jesus heals our sickness physically. This man is walking for the first time. Could you imagine the joy that this man is experiencing as his muscles are made right, as they are strengthened immediately, as his limbs are reanimated? This man has got to be completely elated. When it's God's will in our lives, we are offered the same thing. And if you've ever experienced God's healing in your life over an addiction, over a physical ailment, 
You know exactly what I'm talking about here. You know exactly what this man is experiencing. For the first time, he stood up. He took his bed, which his entire life would have been on because it took people to move him from that bed, and he would have picked it up, and just as Jesus said, he would have walked, and he would have walked down that street, and I don't know where his home actually was. Maybe he went to go be a roommate with one of the four guys that just destroyed Peter's roof, but he's living a good life now. And I'm thinking he doesn't care how long he has to walk to get there because, oh baby, for the first time in his life, because of Jesus, because of an act of God, he is walking. He heals our sickness physically, but he forgives our sin, which means he heals our sickness spiritually. This takes us back to Mark 2.5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And now this is God's will all the time for sinners everywhere, at whatever hour, to put their faith and put their trust in him. Again, we are to be made right spiritually. Just as we were spiritual lepers two weeks ago, today we are spiritually paralyzed. There is no way that we could receive freedom, forgiveness, restoration, repurposing outside of the work of Jesus in our lives, outside of Jesus dying on the cross for our sin in our place in us putting our trust and our faith in him to do that in our lives. We are made free by the king who took the cross. So for you believers in here, those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, I want you mentally to go back to that moment. Go back to that moment when you realize you had sin in your life, when you realize it was only Jesus who would ever be the one that could take care of that sin, but to know that he chose to do so knowing every sin you would ever commit, to put you in right relationship with God so that you could be in his presence for an eternity if you put your faith in Jesus. What was that moment like? For me, it was in the office of a church secretary when she explained using the Romans road exactly my sin, even as an eight-year-old, which was a lot more than probably other eight-year-olds, and exactly how that sin would be forgiven by the work of Jesus. And I remember feeling so overjoyed, so deeply appreciated that the God of the universe, as big as he was, would look down and see infinitely small me as an eight-year-old. And not just that, but all the sin I would ever sin, and he would still send his son to die for me. I remember feeling overwhelmed, saddened, yes. Then I found out he didn't stay dead. That was awesome. We celebrate that. Man, the feeling of joy that overcame me. Let's go back to that moment. Let's glorify. Let's live lives. Let's have entire families whose foundations is built around this. Let's have entire days at work that is built around this. Not anything that could just easily knock us off of our track. But let's glorify the God that saved us. And for those of you who don't yet have a relationship with that God, let's glorify him together when you put your faith in him. If that's you today, and you've yet to put your trust in Jesus, and he's calling you into relationship with him, that's all it takes. It's for you to see that you are sinful, that there is sin in your life, that he made a way for you to be forgiven, and that is the only way to eternal life, is through Jesus and his work on the cross. Put your faith in him. Repent of your sin. Be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Let's glorify him. Let's be the church 
Let's display the kingdom this week. How do we take it out of this room into our lives? I think this week we have to do that by answering some questions. One, what friends in my life need Jesus to heal them of their sins? Two, how will I creatively, faithfully, persistently get them before Jesus? Three, how will I help them to see who he really is? Finally, how will I glorify him for what he has done in my life and in theirs? Let's pray.